Without doubt, the number one question that people ask me over the years is the simple question. It's not a simple question. It's simply stated, but it's the question, why do bad things happen to good people? That's the persistent question that never goes away. That's the persistent question that troubles the hearts and the minds of both believers and non-believers alike. Why do bad things happen to good people? And of course, the inference with the question is really, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? But every time I'm asked that question, and please don't misunderstand what I'm about to say because I don't say this in a in a casual or a condescending way. But every time I'm asked that question, there's another question that comes to my mind, and that's the question, is there really anyone that's good, honestly? Is there really anyone that's good? One of the most familiar stories in the life of Jesus, and it's a story that's so significant that it's found in three of the four Gospels, is the story of the rich young ruler. And you know how it goes. One day a man ran up to Jesus and basically said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And In two of the three Gospels where the story is recorded, we read Jesus responding by saying, why do you call me good? No one is good except God. There's a lot of truth in that statement. In Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul, at one point in that chapter, strings together a series of Old Testament quotes. We know they're Old Testament quotes primarily by the fact that they all begin with the words, as it is written, And all of the quotes revolve around this same idea that no one is honestly, inherently really good. The one that stands out the most to me is Romans chapter 3 and verse 10, where Paul writes and says, there is no one righteous, not even one. And honestly, if you just look at it in simple terms, what he's basically saying is that no one is really good. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me or get the wrong impression. That doesn't mean that I don't believe that we all have good qualities, because we do. And some people, to me, have incredible good qualities in their life, an incredible amount of good qualities. doesn't mean that we don't all do good things. Some people spend their whole lives doing good things. doesn't mean there's not any goodness connected to our lives. It just means that despite any goodness, any level of goodness connected to our lives, we all miss the mark. We all fall short of what God's plan or ideal is for our lives. There's a word in the Bible that describes that reality, and it's the word sin. In fact, the classic definition of sin is to miss the mark or to fall short. And the truth is, because of sin, no matter what level of goodness, personal goodness we might have in our lives, or no matter what number of good things we do, it doesn't change the fact that we've come up short. So the real question, or rather the real answer to the question, why do bad things happen to good people? And probably I should just say it like this, why do bad things happen to people? The answer to that question is just really plain and simple. The answer is sin. That's the problem. Sin causes, sin rather, is the cause of all the bad things that happen in the world today, in our lives today. Whether it's sin that we commit or whether it's the reality that once sin entered into the world, it began to inflict all kinds of pain and all kinds of difficulty and all kinds of suffering in the lives of all of us. The bottom line is sin is the problem. You know, a lot of people want to blame that on God as well. In fact, I've had conversations with people that go something like this. 
maybe you have as well, they'll ask the question, well, pastor, if God is the sovereign, all-powerful creator of all things, then why did He create sin? And here's the simplest way to answer that question. God didn't create sin. God didn't create the evil and the difficulty and the pain and the suffering that comes along with sin, but He did create people. And when He created people, He gave them the ability to love and follow Him. But I want you to think about that with me for just a moment. Inherent in what it means to be able to love and follow God is the ability to choose to do just the opposite and choose to not love and follow Him. And the Bible tells us that was the choice that God's creation that people made. It started all the way back with the very first couple, Adam and Eve, in the Old Testament book of Genesis in the third chapter. And honestly, it's a choice that has been repeated down through the human race, generation after generation, all the way till today, and you and me. Think about it like this. The ability to choose to love someone is inseparably linked with the ability to choose to not love someone to not love them. It's really that simple because true love can't be forced. So God didn't create sin, but He did create people who had the potential for sin, and sadly, we've actualized that potential. We've become really good at sin. And because of that, sin has infected every part of our life and every part of the world. And so when someone asks the question, why do bad things happen to people? I'm not going to say good people. Why do bad things happen to people? The answer is sin, plain and simple. But, and this is so important because this is where we see the goodness of God. This is where the heart of God is really discovered, even though Sin is never a part of His will for anyone's life, even though the world that we live in today is not the world He created. He created a world that wasn't filled with the ravages of sin. God loves us so much that He doesn't want to see us suffer the consequences of sin, so He enacted a plan to rescue us, and that plan unfolded in the life of His Son, Jesus, who came into the world to deal head-on with the reality of sin. That's something that's made clear about Jesus' life even before he was even born. You think back to the book of Matthew in chapter 1 and Matthew's record of the story of Jesus' birth, and we're given that truth that before Jesus was born, Joseph and Mary were pledged together in marriage, but they had not consummated their marriage through an act of sexual intimacy. And Joseph found out one day that Mary was pregnant, and he was devastated. He was heartbroken. You can imagine how he felt. Because he was a righteous man, the Bible says he decided he was just going to divorce her quietly. He wasn't going to hold her up to public ridicule or public scorn. He was just going to divorce her quietly. And he went to sleep one night, and an angel of the Lord visited him and explained to him in a vision what was going on and explained to him that the child that Mary was carrying was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21, the angel said these words to Joseph about Mary. He said, she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. Now, note this last part. The angel said, because he will save his people from their sins. This was the reality and the destiny of Jesus' life before he was even born. And that's what he did. 
When he grew up, somewhere around the age of 30, he began what might best be called a vocational ministry that would end up with him dying on the cross as a substitute for all the people that God had created. He died in our place for our sin. He paid the penalty or the price or the debt of our sin so that we wouldn't have to. That's the central message of the Bible. That was his mission and that was his destiny. And it was revealed early on in his vocational ministry in a really interesting way one day when John the Baptist, who the Bible tells us came into the world to prepare the way for Jesus, when John the Baptist pointed at Jesus and in John chapter 1 and verse 29 said these words, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That isn't the only time in the Bible where Jesus is called the Lamb of God, but it's the first time. And It's really the simplest and the most accurate description of what Jesus came into the world to do. Jesus came into the world to save us because we're all broken. I don't know if we always recognize or realize or are willing to confess and admit that truth, but we're all broken. We've been broken by sin. And Jesus came into the world to save us from that by being broken Himself which is really what John was talking about that day when he pointed at Jesus and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, I was thinking about that verse this week, this, that single verse from John 1.29. And I was wondering in my mind, what would have gone through the mind of a first century Jew who would have been there to hear John say those words? What would have gone through his mind? What kinds of things would he have thought in light of those words? And I'm sure you could answer that in a variety of different ways, but I thought of two different things, and I'll describe each one of them with a single word. The first thing that could have gone through the mind of a first century Jew when he heard John the Baptist say, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world is the word restitution. Restitution. I say that because I think that a first century Jew, when he heard John say those words about Jesus being the Lamb of God, could have immediately begun to think about the temple ritual where a lamb was sacrificed twice each day, every morning and every evening for the sins of the people, to try to make restitution with God for the sins of the people. Now, that wasn't an arbitrary practice. That was actually something that was commanded in the Old Testament book of Exodus. In fact, Exodus 29, verses 38 and 39 say this, this is what you are to offer on the altar regularly each day. Two lambs a year old offer one in the morning and the other at twilight. And this sacrifice, again, was made as a restitution. Maybe if you don't like that word, let's say it like this, as a payment or as an atonement for sin. But there was a problem with this sacrifice. The problem was that it was not permanent. It was never permanent. It never really completely provided what was needed. That's why it had to be offered over and over again. It never brought complete forgiveness because it never provided complete restitution, and restitution was what was needed. And that idea sounds strange to some, especially people who are maybe questioning Christianity, maybe just investigating and trying to discover what it means The idea of needing to make restitution with God with regard to sin seems strange, but just imagine a society where there was 
No such thing as restitution. Just imagine how chaotic that would be. You could take something from someone and never be required to give it back. You could steal from your neighbors and never face any kind of a consequence for your action. There would never be any debt that you needed to pay to society for your misdeeds because there were no consequences, no restitution. You could abuse and mistreat people. You could oppress them. You could enslave them, and nobody would hold you accountable. You could even go so far as to kill someone without any worries because, again, there was no such thing as consequences when there's no such thing as restitution. I think we would all agree that no society could ever function that way. It would eventually implode. And yet for some people, for some reason, they think that while no society should allow its citizens to live in a culture without consequences, God should. And again, I've had those kinds of conversations with people over the years. I've heard people say, you know, that God seems to be arbitrary or God seems to be cruel or He seems to be ruthless when He holds people accountable for their behavior. They say things like, if God is love, then why can't He just let people do what they want to do? Why does He have to punish people when they do wrong? Why does there have to be consequence? Why does there have to be judgment? And oftentimes, those very same people, in the very same breath, will continue and say something like this, and why does God allow so much evil in the world? Am I the only one who sees the disconnect in those things? To say, why, why shouldn't God just allow us to do whatever we want with the freedom from consequence, with no consequence, with no judgment, with no punishment? And at the same time, wonder why there's any evil in the world? It's hard to connect those two dots. See, here's the plain and the unvarnished truth. We are all sinners. We've all offended a holy God. We've all done things that we should not have done, and we've all left undone those things that we should have done. That's the reality for all of our lives. And because of that, there needs to be restitution for sin. There needs to be payment for sin. There needs to be atonement for sin because a holy God simply can't ignore sin. He can't look the other way. His perfect justice needs to be satisfied. And that's what Jesus did when He came into the world as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. His death provided restitution. His death provided payment. His death provided atonement, whatever words you want to use for sin. That's why Romans 3.25, we talked about Romans 3 a moment ago. If we go a little bit further down in Romans 3.25, that's why Romans 3.25 says God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood. Jesus, as the Lamb of God, did something that none of the other sacrificial lambs in history had ever been able to do. He provided complete restitution, complete payment, complete atonement for the sin of our lives and the sin of the world. And then there was a second word that came to my mind that I thought might have gone through the mind of a first century Jew when they heard John the Baptist say, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and that's the word Passover. If you were like me, you learned about the Passover when you were just a child growing up in Sunday school. It was an ancient Jewish celebration commemorating an event that happened when God's people were slaves in Egypt so many years ago. The Bible tells us that for 400 years, the children of Israel were slaves in Egypt, and one day, God said, enough. And so He took Moses, a man 
whose life was lived under the providence, the sovereign providence of God. Moses, the Bible tells us, spent the first 40 years of his life in Egypt, living as a prince of Egypt. Then he spent the next 40 years of his life in the wilderness as a shepherd in a time of preparation. And then he spent the final 40 years of his life as God's great deliverer to the Israelites who he led out of Egyptian bondage. And he you know the story, came to Moses, he spoke to him through a burning bush that was miraculous because even though it was on fire, it was never consumed. And he said, I want you to go to Egypt. I want you to go back to Egypt. I want you to say this one message to Pharaoh. I want you to say, let my people go. This is what God says, let my people go. And so after some convincing, Moses did just that. He went to Pharaoh and he said, let my people go. And Pharaoh refused and resisted and rejected God, even though God through Moses brought plague after plague, devastating plague after devastating plague onto the land of Egypt. And finally, God sent one last plague, and it was the plague of the angel of death. God told Moses to tell the Israelites when that was about to happen to stay at home and to sacrifice a lamb. Here's the idea of the sacrificial lamb again, to sacrifice a lamb and smear the lamb's blood on the doorpost of their homes because that night the angel of death was going to come and visit every household in Egypt. But this is exactly what God said to the Israelites through Moses in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 13. He said, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And that's where the idea of the Passover comes from, the celebration of the angel of death passing over the homes of God's children in Egypt. So it was the blood of the lamb that provided the protection. It was the blood of the lamb that I think you could even say provided the salvation for those Israelite families. It's a tremendous story, one of the greatest stories in the Old Testament. A couple of weeks ago, I was at home and I was watching the movie, The Prince of Egypt, with my five-year-old granddaughter, Gracie. And she had seen the movie before, but it was the first time I'd ever watched it with her. And I, we got to that part of the movie where the death angel was going to come. And I was a little bit anxious about how she was going to respond because she has a pretty sensitive heart. And there's some brutal parts of the story of Moses, you know, from the time when Moses was first born and Pharaoh issued that edict to, to kill all those baby boys. It was a devastating time in the history of God's people. And now the angel of death was going to come, and there were going to be devastating consequences for the Egyptians, and I wasn't sure exactly how she was going to respond, and so we were watching the movie, and we were watching them smear the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of their homes, and she looked up at me at one point, and she said, Grandpa, the people with the blood on their doors are the people that love Jesus. Now, somebody might want to be really strict and say, that's not entirely true, but I'm going to disagree with you. They might not have known exactly who Jesus was at the time, but they loved the lamb, the blood of the lamb that saved them. But whatever it was that came to the mind of a first century Jew, when he heard John the Baptist say, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the bottom line is I can guarantee you he thought of help and he thought of hope. Because that's what the Lamb offered. That's what Jesus, the Lamb of God, offers to all of us. And that's what we commemorate every week when we come together to worship here at Mount Pleasant through the celebration of the Lord's Supper. We commemorate, we remember, and we commemorate the help and the hope 
that Jesus brought to us in our brokenness because he was willing to be broken for us. So the Lord's Supper is really a time of remembrance and it's a time of celebration, but that remembrance and that celebration is focused on the reality of our brokenness. Because every time we gather together to worship, we gather together as a community of broken people. I was reading devotionally recently, and I ran across a quote by a man named John Ortberg that really resonated in my heart and really stood out to me. He wrote, If ever there were a true, just-as-I-am church, if ever there were a community where everybody could bring all their baggage and brokenness with them without neat and tidy happy endings quite yet, if ever there was a group where everyone was loved and no one pretended, we could not make enough room inside the building. In other words, he said if ever there was a church just like that, that church wouldn't have room enough for all the people that would come. And those words resonated with me because... I've been a pastor a long time, and I know this is what the church is supposed to be like. I know this is the reality. This is the environment that the church is supposed to provide. I remember feeling really troubled on Mother's Day weekend because, and I said this in all the services, that while Mother's Day is a wonderful, incredible, joyful celebration for so many, it's also deeply painful for others for a variety of different reasons. And all those reasons revolve around brokenness, the reality of brokenness. And I was aware of people who didn't want to come to church on that weekend because of the depth of that brokenness. And I thought to myself, that's exactly the opposite of the way it's supposed to be. And I made this statement in our services if we can't bring our brokenness to church, then we're not doing it right. We need to stop and start all over again. We're not doing it right. We make a huge mistake when we come to church to worship a, a sovereign and an omniscient God, all the while hiding the reality of our struggles because our most significant and momentous encounters with God all begin with honesty. Honesty about the reality of all of our lives. Because all of our lives have been broken by sin on some level. Sins that we've committed and sins in the world that have victimized us. Not anything we did, but just the victimization of the reality of living in a sinful and fallen world. And that makes the truth that Jesus came to meet that brokenness by being broken himself, all the more significant to all of us. And so I want us to think about that for a moment. I've asked Heidi to come and sing a special song. Then I'm going to come back and we're going to share the Lord's Supper together.